When I was in college, I was debating between a religious studies major, which is what I ultimately chose, and doing a special teacher program, which would have had me graduate with a history major and certification to teach in public schools across the country. As I was trying to make that decision, I spoke with my own high school teachers, to students in the program, to faculty in both majors, trying to get a sense of which path would be right for me. I remember clearly one of the best arguments for teaching, or at least the most striking. The director of this program at my college, a professor now, but a woman who had also served for many years herself as a high school teacher and administrator, told me that she had named her sailboat after the top three top reasons to become a teacher. I imagined, of course, reason, love, and scholarship, or children, hope, and future. No, this woman was more realistic than I. The sailboat was called June, July, and August. <laughs> True story. I didn't end up becoming a teacher, obviously, but of course, the, that's right, the clergy profession, particularly in liberal religious movements, has retained the best of the teaching and scholarly traditions. And so for many ethical culture leaders, June, July, and August still bring a break from work, a respite in the busy year of congregational life. Here at West, we are a year-round society with platforms and music and children's programming every Sunday of the summer. But even here, I will be speaking a little less frequently in the months ahead. We'll have some visiting leaders, some of you presenting platforms along with Mary and me. And as those of you who serve on committees know, many West groups take a little break over the summer or meet for a longer and more relaxed retreat time instead of monthly meetings. There is a sense, I think, of these months ahead as being just a little bit different, a little bit slower, more introspective, any rate, a kind of break from the fast pace of the year we've just had. And really, there is something about summer that calls for that kind of break. It could be because we all remember the summer vacations of our childhood, stretching out with possibilities and a total lack of homework. Or perhaps it's hot, humid DC weather, which makes walking to the mailbox seem like a lot to accomplish in a day. Many of us still take our own vacations in the summer, whether or not we have children in the school system. June, July, and August are still the months, it seems, for resting. But what about those of us, and I will include myself in that us, who aren't that good at resting? <laughs> Summer vacations, and really vacations in general, have always been a mixed blessing for me. They sound good in theory, of course. I look forward to them. I count the days until I get there. I grumble if it's been too long since I had one. I dream about the novels I'll read and the time that I'll spend just lying around the house doing nothing at all. And then that long-awaited vacation finally arrives, and I put away my theology books and trade my professional clothes for shorts and a t-shirt, settle into the couch or the hammock or the porch. Ah, I think to myself, finally, nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to see. 
just me and time to be. Then I get bored. <laughs> First, I suppose I get relaxed, and then bored, and then a little mopey, and finally I sink into a kind of apathy, an ennui that comes from having lost all attachment to and involvement in the world. Since that process, really, from relaxed to ennui takes about five minutes, <laughs> I generally have a lot of vacation still ahead of me. And I realize, to my great horror, that I have nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no one to see. Just me and time to be. A recipe, surely, for disaster. I should say, actually, that this was all true until a little while ago, about 18 months, to be exact, <laughs> when my daughter came into my life. Suddenly, it seems that while vacations may stretch out before me, empty time never does. My husband, Peter, and I have realized that vacations will never be quite the same now that we have a miniature person to carry around or run after, to feed and get to sleep and keep from crying. Babies, it turns out, don't take vacations. They just keep on making you busy, only in a different location where you have fewer of their toys, you have forgotten their sippy cup, and their favorite book. You would think, perhaps, that this would be a welcome change for someone like me, me of the restless heart and mind who can't settle down for a nice empty day on the couch. But it seems that taking care of a baby, especially full-time, as one does on vacation, actually requires some of the same skills that good vacationing requires, those skills that I woefully lack. A day spent with a baby, or in my case now, a toddler, requires one to just go with the flow, to let go of expectations, to be fully present to whatever the moment brings. It requires an ability, really, to putter, to kind of wander around and pick clovers and stop to examine blades of grass and not worry so much about the next thing or the scheduled thing or the planned thing. It asks you to just be where you are with your two-foot-tall leader and as much patience as you can muster. My husband, it turns out, is really pretty phenomenal at this kind of baby carrying, this art of puttering. I always thought that Peter would be a good father, but I will admit to secretly thinking that after all, I would be the more competent parent, <laughs> the one who was really in charge, who, after all, had studied human development, who had taken that class in college on children and TV. And who, I ask you, had read all of those child-rearing books and sleep books and just all those books in general? Peter, I thought, would be just fine. But of course, I would be the captain parent, and he could follow my lead. Perhaps it is because today is Father's Day that I feel I must set the record straight. It is true that I am more likely to know the right dose of children's Tylenol off the top of my head, and I at least have more definite opinions on which car seat is best. But as far as hands-on baby care is concerned, Peter is the captain parent, and I do my best to say aye aye. I've wondered why this is, and I think it really is the puttering, 
Peter's easygoing nature and his acceptance that on vacation or off, a toddler will be making most of the decisions about that day. But there's something else, too, something else that informs his parenting, that informs, perhaps even more distinctly, his fathering. Peter plays with Marcella almost all the time. He plays at getting her to eat her peas and plays at finding her shoes, Changing her diaper, which has the distinct possibility of turning into a total baby meltdown, is accompanied by singing and animal sounds. Peter knows how to putter, and he knows how to play. As it turns out, many fathers share this knowledge. Studies, those human development studies, in fact, that I read about so carefully, have shown that fathers are more likely to spend time playing with their children than mothers are, and babies know it, too. The mama or nana sound used around the world to refer to the mother figure is a vocalization that babies associate with food or with comfort. Dada or baba sounds, on the other hand, are how babies vocalize playfully, how they indicate delight or excitement. It's really great, huh? Peter is the source of joy and good times, and I am the cafeteria. But the truth is that I have learned from Peter, learned to add a little more play into my time with Marcella. I've learned to swoop down with tickles, even if I'm just passing through the room where she's playing. I've learned that a game of peekaboo can actually speed up the process of getting her into her car seat and make it a heck of a lot more fun on the way. The rest of the world must have noticed this difference, too, must have picked up on those studies about fathers and play. And when I say the rest of the world, of course, I mean Hallmark. Father's Day cards, at least the ones that I found, talk about all the fun things that a child does with her father, while Mother's Day cards, I have noticed, seem to focus on what the mother has done for her child, the sacrifices made or the love given but rarely the bike rides taken. Now, Hallmark doesn't get to have the final say on Father's Day. This is, after all, an industry that turned Mother's Day from an anti-war declaration into a chocolate and roses festival. But I think there's something to it. And so on this Father's Day, I want to invite us all to think about that playfulness, to think about the Dada Baba side of parenting, or perhaps just of being in the world. There are now, and really have always been, so many kinds of families. Ones with fathers and without. Ones with weekend-only fathers and stay-at-home fathers. And while some of us have wonderful memories of our fathers, some of us don't, or we are missing those fathers, or missing the fathers we didn't have. Some of us may be celebrating our own family, which perhaps doesn't include a father at all, while for others, this day is particularly special because our family has two fathers. Like any holiday, there is no one-size-fits-all version. All we can do is be true to our own experiences and learn from each other's. Scientists, of course, are among those who learn from others' experiences. Ideally, I guess. And there is no shortage of studies about the role of fathers in parenting. 
We have come a long way, I'm happy to say, from the 1950s idea that the father simply pats the children on the head when they're presented, bathed, and fed, and sleepy at the end of the day. Although that image has made more than one of us, myself included, too long for a 1950s wife. <laughs> we are learning more and more, though, about the importance of fathers in the lives of their children. One study by authors Jeffrey Rosenberg and W. Bradford Wilcox comes up with seven pillars of effective fatherhood, father, followed by a series of con concrete examples about how to connect with your child. The first, I was gratified to see, having already written the first half of this platform, highlighted the importance of play. <laughs> and it's there that I think we can all learn from that fathering tendency from that image of the father throwing his child up in the air, knowing that the rush of free fall fills her with delight. Just as I've learned from Peter, from seeing his version of fathering, of parenting, it's helped me to bring a bit more dada into my mama-ness, and not just with my daughter. I try, when I can, to bring some dadaness into the rest of my life, too. To putter and play a little bit more, maybe think and plan a little bit less. To look at a vacation, or at least an empty hour, with anticipation, knowing that something will unfold in that hour that I'm not expecting, even if it's just a nap, or these days especially if it's a nap. And that's what I want to give to all of you on this Father's Day, as you think about all that fathering means for you. And as you finish up our rainy June and slide into the hot days of July, I want to give you the gift of Dada, the gift of play, of puttering. And I hope that you will find that play not only in your own lives, and in your own families, but here at Wes, too. Just as this is a community where we work for justice and practice ethical living and study the wisdom of the world's greatest thinkers, so too it is a community where we play, a community that picnics and goofs around and gets silly together. Proof of that fact was alive and well, as Mary shared at our wonderful and wonderfully silly Follies last night, complete with singing cow and dancing sailors. Our ch moo, yes, thank you. Our children understand well the importance of play. Mary and Peggy and I have been creating the themes that will take our children through their Sunday school years in our new workshop rotation model, and we've wanted to really highlight that special importance of play, that religious value, really of embodiment, of delight, of joy. One of the things I love about reading mystics from different religious traditions is that they invariably come up with some of the same conclusions, no matter what their own spiritual journeys have been. They write often of the oneness of the world. They almost always share some formulation of the golden rule, insisting that we treat each other with kindness and love. And nearly universally, they communicate a sense of enchantment with the world, with the beauty that surrounds them, the fun, really, of living. 
Rarely do you find a mystic who suggests that everyone ought to keep, be keeping their noses so close to the grindstone that they forget to notice the wonder of our world. They're big on wonder, those mystics. So whatever fathers there are or aren't in our own families, we all have that capacity for wonder, for silliness and laughter, that capacity for play. This summer, I invite you to explore that, to take a break from some of the rush, 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 and to concentrate instead on the fine art of doing nothing much. Enjoy picking clover or reading poetry. Dream a little bit about what you want to be in the coming year, how you want to shape what Mary Oliver calls your one wild and precious life. Don't write it down, though. Just dream a little. Let the imagining take you where it will. If you are like me, it can be hard to think of a day, let alone a few months, without every next step planned and charted out. But this summer, when I start itching to write another to-do list, I'm going to think about throwing that child up in the air. I'm going to think about freefall and play, about the da-da-ba-ba rush of letting go and sailing through the air. I can't tell you exactly where we're all heading in this wonderful world we inhabit, but I certainly hope we'll find time to play along the way. <laughs>